You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Welcome all you weirdos. Spouses mysteriously return from far off realms. And everyone who can't seem to get their old girlfriend out of their head. It is time for episode number 85 of The Weird Dose of X. The mutant member of your Weird Science Podcast family. I am your abstract entity host, Jason. Broadcasting, as always, from the Wrong Turn Studio, high atop stately Weird Science Tower. And joining me today from directly below the flight path of the High Evolutionary's genetic alteration sphere is my pal Ruben. Hey, Ruben, how the heck are you today? Hey, I, uh, yeah, I have some things to say about what you just joked about. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was, it was some local color there in that X-Men yes. book. Oh, that, that yes. got my attention. So yeah, today's only X-Book that we're going to talk about is... X-Men number 31. But, uh, you know, that's kind of cutting things a little short. So as a postscript, Ruben, you and I are going to then go on and chat a little bit about God's number three and four, that other Hickman thing that's that's going on in Marvel right now. So, folks, stick around for that. Now, before we get started, I, I do want to mention a book that came out this week that we will not be discussing. Uh, it's Wolverine, Magipore Knights with a K, number one, written by Chris Claremont. It's set back around the time of Uncanny number 268, so uh, not usually the kind of thing we, we cover on this podcast. No, we don't need that. But, uh, but Jim and Gray do talk about it on Jim's Best Comics of the Week, which you can find on the podcast feed or out there on the YouTube. So if you want to hear about some old-time Wolverine, I think Black Widow's in there and Cap as well. So some good old Madripoor stuff. Go check that out. Okay, so now on to this week's singular X-Book, which is... X-Men number 31, The Passenger, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Phil Noto, letters by Clayton Cowles, uh, designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. Now, I don't know about you, Ruben, but I found this to be another not entirely satisfying issue from Duggan. Are, are you going to be the, uh, the, the the cheerful Chuck, or are you going to be a, a, a negative Nancy like me? No, I was kind of disappointed by it. I felt like it was... Maybe I hyped it up in my head more than I should have because I saw people saying, oh, this is going to be a big issue. But And maybe it's the art feels a little like, I don't want to say it's like bad, but it's just sort of a little too light for what's trying, like what they're trying to show. Okay. Yeah, it, it really just doesn't hit as well as I was expecting it to. In a lot of ways, it is a big issue, right? Big things happen. We've resolved several major plot points. So if you just kind of list X, Y, and Z happen, it feels really big. But for me, it wasn't the art so much. I, I like uh, I like Phil Noto, I think, more than most people. Uh, but just the way the story is told made me feel like some of the big plot points now just don't feel as big as I thought they were supposed to be. So let, let's go through it and see if maybe I was just kind of in a, a bad mood when I read it. But there are three story strands going on here. And in, in keeping with Weirdo's tradition, we are going to untangle them, take them on one at a time. These story strands are, number one, Sink and Talon. Number two, X-Men versus Nimrod. And number three, Kingpin and Typhoid Mary. Three big things. So let's start with uh, Sink and Talon. I mean, I, I can't decide, Ruben. Should I point out that this issue yet again starts with something kind of like a dream sequence? It, am I getting a little too technical there? Because, I mean, it may be more like a vision, right? It's taking place in Sink's head. Yeah, it's it's a theater of the mind thing. Theater not... of the mind. Of the mind, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, as we recall, Talon's body is dead. That Talon is the old lady Laura. She was killed by the High Evolutionary on their pretty stupid mission to Counter-Earth, and Sink is keeping her mind alive within his mind, which apparently ain't easy. So over the course of their discussions together, Laura convinces Sink, convinces, ugh, 
Laura convinces Sink that he has to let go of her. The strain is killing him, and he has other business to attend to, other mutants to save, and so he does. Uh, and a narration box tells us that, quote, the longest romance in X-Men history finally ended, which to me, that seems pretty fine, right? It's like the, did you see the body? This is the narration telling us, yeah, she's really gone. So what did you what did you think of this? I The idea is supposed to be tragic, but for some reason it didn't it didn't hit. And I think maybe the problem was that Duggan didn't do a good enough job showing that they were, you know, deeply entangled. And partially it's because everything, like all of their deep connections were formed supposedly while they were in the vault, right? Right. Which I don't think we really saw. We just kind of heard like, oh yeah, we spent you know thousands of years together. And I think back, it was those issues back where that was established. I thought it was established pretty well, but you're right that we didn't really see a whole lot of their relationship between then and now. Yeah. And she just kind of died abruptly, right? So we didn't even really see them like go on missions. And I, I just, just didn't have an attachment right, to them as right. a as a couple, right? So then at the end, when she shockingly dies last issue, and then here he's just kind of like, oh, yeah, I guess I'll let go of you. It just didn't really, it didn't t- tug at my heartstrings that much. I mean, thinking it through it, I can understand how this is a big, sad moment, right? But it just... I wasn't invested in it, I guess, so it doesn't hit as, as hard as I would have expected. To, to me, this was, I think, the strongest part of the issue for me. I, I think I got a little more of the emotions than you did. I enjoyed Phil Noto's art here. I, I think his art is probably best suited to this kind of character-type moments, maybe more than some of the action stuff. So, yeah, I thought this was, was okay, but it all been at this quality, I would have been, been happier. But I think going forward, we'll have to see what this does to Sync and how he's able to function as the leader of at least this group of X-Men after losing Laura this tragic way. Uh, We we do get a bit of this in the next story strand, uh, which begins with Spidey and Ms. Marvel using that high evolutionary tech to undo the psychic kill switch that Orcus spread throughout humanity using those tainted magic mutant meds. And it works really easily. Uh, uh, Barely an inconvenience, as they say on the YouTubes, right? Uh, Spidey says, quote, we're flying it at a relatively low altitude, so it won't look like a satellite. Uh, I don't know about that, Spidey. We, we see it zip by <laughs> lower than the Seattle Space Needle. Yes, yeah, so she's not very tall. It is very, yeah, it's pretty short. I looked it up, right about 600 feet tall. So like half an Empire State Building or like a third of the the you know, World Trade Tower, one Freedom Tower in New York. Not not super tall. I think that's going to attract some attention. It reminded me but of like, set. Go ahead. This is the part I wanted to talk about. <laughs> Besides the proportions, I mean, this has got, I, this has got to be like down near the convention center because the Space Needle doesn't look tall anywhere else. And those okay. buildings in the <laughs> background, we've got the one closest to the Space Needle, that's the Columbia Center. And then the one with the green roof is the Washington Mutual Tower. Um, oh, that's cool. I, I hadn't realized that part was uh, actually accurate, but it's beyond the Space Needle. So that's neat to know. Yes. Yeah. So those are actual buildings. And I actually have worked in, I worked in the Washington Mutual Tower. So I guess that means I'm, I'm in this universe, right? <laughs> <laughs> but those buildings, I don't, they're much taller than Space Needle, so it, it just looks really funky to me. It's like a backdrop. And I kind of wondered why they did this anyways. Does Phil Noto have some kind of like ties to this region? Yeah, it, it, Seattle's not mentioned in the text. It says it's finishing up on the West Coast, and then we're going to deploy it across the border to Canada. So it makes sense that it would be in the Pacific Northwest, given that description, but yeah, I wonder if Phil Noto had like a, a postcard or some particular kind of art he was using as, as reference. And I mean, I bet that given this, we could we could figure out exactly where you'd have to stand for those buildings to line up that way. I mean, if such a place exists. Yeah, it doesn't. 
Oh, oh no. Oh, <laughs> I well. can send you some photos later. Maybe I'll put it in the chime. Like I've taken pictures recently and you just can't see those buildings. That's basically downtown. And then Space Needle's like more like around. Are, people, are people throwing fish around here? I, I hear that people throw fish a lot there in downtown Seattle. <laughs> that's all I know about Seattle, really. That's at the Pike Place Market. Yeah, that's. Okay, so don't throw the fish too high. The- it yeah. might get smacked by a high evolutionary sphere. Yeah. So this this also reminds me of like Santa's sleigh on Christmas Eve, right? It has to visit all the good boys and good girls of all the world, probably being tracked by NORAD. And yeah, anyway, sure enough, Nimrod notices. He shows up to fight and Spidey, um, he disguises their control system by wrapping it up in webs. <laughs> that, that won't draw attention. Good, good thinking, Pete. No one will notice yeah. that. <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking there. That, that, that didn't look good at all. That looked dumb. Yes. So then there's an extended, uh, oddly comical fight sequence. Nightcrawler joins in, Kitty Pride joins in, Logan joins in. Nothing really works against Nimrod, but Nimrod doesn't seem to be really trying. Because if Nimrod's trying, then there should be several dead superheroes lying around, right? What? This, this Was this fight just too light and frothy, or was, again, was that just my prejudice? Yeah, I think this is where the art really failed me. Because, I again, I always think of Nimrod as this actual serious threat. That is very difficult to defeat. And I mean, he's an AI, right? He's supposed to think it speeds a lot faster than the human think mind. Think really fast right? and adapt super fast to any kind of a threat. Yes. He even talks about how, you know, he's Nimrod the Greater and the one they defeated earlier was Nimrod the Lesser. Right. That's when uh, Kitty phases through him. And Kitty phasing through technology typically makes the technology stop working. But that does not affect him because he is Nimrod the Greater. And even the idea, like, hey, I'm going to stab him in the Achilles, I'm like, okay, it's a machine, right? Like, why would you think that would do anything? He does have, like, sometimes he has Spidey right around the neck, and he just kind of tosses him aside into a dumpster. Uh, there's places where you'd think that, oh, yeah, he could he could kill people now, and I don't see why he's not doing that. I don't see why you know, Logan can so easily just, you know, chop up his legs. It, it, it seems, it doesn't seem as serious. It makes makes Nimrod seem... Just not a, a scary threat anymore, which is which is a bummer. And then finally, Sink shows up, pretty pissed off because of what just happened with Laura, and he hits Nimrod with a storm power lightning bolt, so strong that Nimrod starts speaking binary. Sink then teleports the team away using is that is that Magic's kind of stepping disc power? Is that what's yeah, going on? It looks like it, which is fine. Uh, he I tells also laugh at at the. Uh- you know, the next time you see me, you die. Yeah, you talk a lot of trash as you got your ass kicked, right? <laughs> if you're so convinced that you have the ability to defeat Nimrod, like why? Right. If, Sink, why are if you, you fleeing? Can, if you can take Nimrod off the board now, you, you got to do that, dude. You're not going to get a lot of chances. He's so one, of the, I, one of the major threats. It's one of the things I hated about this was maybe he's just talking trash because he's angry about having given up the life of Laura, but he didn't accomplish much of anything. And when they go away, it's not because there's a particular urgent threat at that moment. All he does, he says, hey, guys, by the way, uh, Laura's gone. The hostages are free, meaning the whole mutant med kill switch is deactivated worldwide. And now it's time to start planning how to rescue Cyclops, which would be a really big deal if we didn't already know how that was going to go down because it already happened in Duggan's other book, Ball of the House of X. So, yeah, it's a real anti-climax there because we're planning a, a rescue that everyone who's read this book knows is going to fail. So, also, if you could just portal away from Nimrod and it's not an issue, then why didn't Nightcrawler just grab his teammates and bamf him away? 
Like, there's no reason that mm-hmm. Sink well, needed to even do this. I guess he I, I shot him with some electricity, but at that- least for a while they needed to distract Nimrod so he didn't stop the sphere from doing its thing. So I think they needed a certain amount of not very much time. I don't want to calculate how fast that sphere has to be going to you know complete the whole Earth in that that time, but. You know, hope there's no birds in the way. Uh, so, yeah, I think that was the idea is we have to keep him busy. And now Singh says it's finished. We can get the heck out of here. I also didn't like Shadowcat getting punched by Nimrod. I was like, she was charging him, but didn't go intangible. <laughs> yeah. Like, why? Like, yeah, that's that kind of whole thing. Good point. So I just felt like this whole fight was just a weak, a weak fight. It didn't make Nimrod look tough. And, and it's it been didn't. a few times now that Nimrod in, in Duggan's hands has been kind of a bozo, right? On Krakoa yeah. there in, in Fall of the House of X, and here versus this handful of not super powerful X-Men. Well, all right, so we have one more story strand here. This is Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. the Kingpin, a.k.a. currently the White King. He's having a meeting with various former allies at the Hellfire Club. The meeting is interrupted by a police officer with a message for Fisk. He whispers the message to the Kingpin, and the Kingpin ends the meeting immediately. We cut to Fisk's reunion with his wife, Typhoid Mary. Cop says that they, quote, picked her up at the old Fisk Tower. So when Mary got beamed back from Vanaheim at the end of Realm of X number four, I guess that's she either went there directly or that's where she took herself to to, to look for her husband. The reunion here is nice enough. I, I, I do like the way that Phil Noto portrays Fisk's kind of shock and confusion that his wife has just shown back up again. I think that's the strongest art here is just the uh, the emotion on his face. Like, what do you mean? I'm, I've devoted my whole life currently to trying to figure out how to get her back. And she just shows up. I think that that weird confusion is is uh, is is really well put on the page there. Uh, Mary does show off, I think, at least three of her personalities, which is at least two more than we saw from in Realm of X. So that characterization of her is is back on the table again. That's nice. Uh, I did like how the contrast with the Sync Talon story here is is made explicit. Right, one couple getting back together, the other being torn apart forever. So that that yin and yang. That, that that works in a comic book. I like that. What did, what did you think of the emotional weight of this bit of the book? In my mind, this was better. The art was better. The facial expressions were better. I even, I was kind of surprised at Fisk's reaction where basically said she was kind of confessing to stepping out a little bit in Vanaheim. And he was just like, hey, I don't want to hear that. Like, I'm just glad you're back. That surprised me. Not not what I expected Wilson Fisk to do, but... If his relationship is with a multi, you know, person with multiple personality disorder, like maybe you just know that comes with the territory. Yeah, I guess it, it's pretty vague. I, I don't think they want to reference too specifically anything that happened in Realm of X. Uh, it's the scared kind of little girl personality that says the other me did a bad thing, and then one of the more aggressive was say, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, wasn't me." So I guess that's referencing the whole, you know, had that little semi fling with the one Vanaheim dude. That's what I read into it. That works. He's dead anyway, so who cares, right? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't count if he's dead. I think that's I think that's the rule. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's not the rule. Uh, anyway, Mary and Fisk have been appearing together in issues of Amazing Spider-Man since December. So if you're keeping track at home, and you probably shouldn't be, those issues happen after this one. So maybe maybe all of Fall of the House of X is kind of happening in a tight time period, and maybe most of the rest of the six one six books are now currently post Fall of the House of X. I'm always curious also, how this fits into the main universe continuity, and it, it's good to have at least a couple little signposts. My other thought when I saw this was, you know, Fisk has been helping the mutants because he's trying to get Typhoid Mary back, right? He doesn't have that 
need at this point, right? So like how far is his help going to going to go? Yeah. What's what's his incentive? I mean, if he already has what he wants, maybe he and Mary just get back on that sailboat, ride out whole fall of X orcas nonsense on an island somewhere. I'm not sure the means really need that much from him anymore, but I wouldn't be surprised if something happened in Iron Man based on this. It would be nice to see that tied together, which it could really happen because Doug obviously is writing that book as well. Uh, yeah, it, Tony and Emma interfaced with uh, Fisk all the time, relying on him for money and protection. And Tony's you know, current lab and home base is hidden inside uh, the Hellfire Club. So if he doesn't have access to that, that's a big deal. But you know, maybe that story's moved on, and maybe they're on into the whole space, you know, giant flying uh, Mysterium suits now. So yeah, that uh, that's the book. Like I said, big things happen. Old Lady Laura really dead. Orcus no longer has big chunks of humanity hostage, and uh, Fisk and Mary are back together. For me, on reread, the Sink Laura stuff was pretty effective. I know you didn't think it was that great. Uh, the Fisk Mary bit only a couple pages. Works well enough to make me glad that she's back and make me, you know, want to speculate what's going to happen going forward. But yeah, for me, this, the fight scene is where the, the book really lost a lot. And that's like half the book. That's by far the longest scene in the book. We, we went over pretty quickly because we don't need a, he punched him and then she kicked that guy. It, 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 you know, it's a fight. Uh, the tone of it just so goofy, light and quippy when a fight with Nimrod should be deadly serious. Never for a moment. That I think, oh, some of these heroes are in real danger. Oh, maybe, maybe Spider Man is going to get killed by Nimrod. N never crossed my mind. I don't think Spidey should be in this book. I don't think Ms. Marvel should be in this book. I think it undermines the whole X Men doing their X thing. It undermines the tone of it, especially if Duggan's going to make Spider Man come in and do his, you know, quippy thing. It, it just undermines all the emotional and narrative weight that should be accumulating here as we head to this big conclusion. So I'm going to give this issue of X-Men, same score I gave the previous one, 6.8 out of 10. Some good stuff, but a, a big section that really, really fell short. How about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm losing patience with Duggan, so I'm going to go down to a 6. It's sort of... Down to a 6, okay. It's not a bad issue per se, but it's just, it feels almost like I'm getting like insulted. Like he's just kind of stringing us along because, I don't know, it just feels like he's starting to delay the story again. For me, it's like he he, ha he has these big things he has to do, and he's kind of spending them in a way that devalues them a bit. Like the loss of Laura, the the fight with Nimrod, all the all the people on Earth are no longer under the heel of Orcus. You know, they can't just flip a switch and and kill everybody who ever took one of those meds, and that should be huge. Doesn't feel huge. Oh, by the way, I have seen one attempt to explain the continuity, to try to make that work. Uh, to explain what was up with that last panel of X-Men 29, the mm -hmm. one where the team comes back from Latveria to the Morlock Tunnels and finds the place just trashed and bloody. Yeah, uh, what did they say? We, we've been complaining about that for months now. So here in this issue, number 31, Kitty says of Sink, quote, I think he popped bone claws and trashed his bunk. Then he didn't have Talon's healing factor to sew him up. So put aside that if he had access to claw powers, he should have had a healing factor access as well. Maybe it doesn't work that way. I don't know. But this theory says that the final scene of issue 29 takes place in between issues 30 and 31. The, the idea is the events of issue 30 happen, right? Sink comes back from Counter-Earth with Laura in his head. He freaks out and trashes the joint so violently that he leaves puddles of his own blood on the floor. Uh, these are the puddles found at the end of issue 29. I, 
There were also like green goo on the walls. I haven't seen a good explanation for that. I don't know where the green stuff comes from. So in issue 31, we see the aftermath of that with Sink curled up in his bed talking to Laura of the Mind. I think that's probably the best explanation we're going to get. Do you do you buy that? I agree. That's the best explanation we're going to get. <laughs> I, I think it, it works well enough, but it feels mm-hmm. like it was a big change in yeah that last story panel, direction. That last panel was really extreme, right? I'm thinking maybe Joshua Kassara, the issue for issue 29, the artist for issue number 29, maybe just got a little overexcited when he saw the description of you know oh the room looks trashed. I think he just he just went overboard there. So I think if that had been toned down a bit, it wouldn't have stuck in my head as, oh my God, what the hell happened? So I, I think I'm just going to mentally make that one panel a little less extreme and say, yeah, that was Sink having a bad day, you know, breaking stuff. Uh, by the way, this comes from Commenter Douglas at the House to Astonish website. So just to give credit where it's due. Good. Thanks, thanks Douglas. Douglas. I think that's going to work. Yeah. Uh, now... Onward to our discussion of gods. That's our last discussion of any actual X stuff this week. So if that's all you care about, feel free to tune out. We'll see you next time. Uh, but if you want to hear about some more X-Men or some more Hickman stuff, uh, we're going to talk about gods number three and four. Uh, they're both written by Jonathan Hickman, art by Valerio Schiti, colors by Marte Gracia, letters by Travis Lanham, and design by Jay Bowen. So at issue four, we're now halfway through this eight-part series, and the story is kind of slowly starting to take shape. I was confused when issue two took what felt like a major departure from my expectations after issue one, but I, I think I have more of a grasp of it now. You you in the same camp? I think you're already more on board than I was, but I, I've caught up. Oh, yeah. I'm way on board with this series at this okay. point. <laughs> I so, think Hickman, Hickman writes in a way that, that works for me. And maybe it's just the dialogue resonates with my brain in a, in a the way dialogue that works. Makes I, me like I just it. I had kind of in my head thought after issue one, okay, we're gonna stick with Wynn, we're gonna stick with Dimitri, and then when it went somewhere entirely different, I didn't quite know how to deal with it. But now I'm seeing that Hickman's adding a variety of new characters to the Marvel world here. So every issue kind of brings in somebody new. And well, now that I about, see what he's building, it makes sense. Yeah, you talk about yin and yang, and really the story seems to be about you know, the knowledge side and the magic side, and we almost get equal billing on both of them. Yeah, and in lots of different ways, we're seeing that dichotomy reinforced, as a sounded like my old high school English teacher there for a second, dichotomies, my gosh. Okay, so our big bad, or at least the big, biggest bad we know about, is the in-betweener. This guy is an abstract entity who is up to no good. He is conditioning people to do very bad things, bad as in, you know, end the universe type things. And he does this by sealing those people inside operant conditioning boxes, aka Skinner boxes, Skinner Skinner boxes, and altering their entire sense of reality. The in-betweener's first agent was Cubisk Core, the proto-mage who triggered a Babylon event, nearly ended the world in issue one. He didn't succeed at that, but he did kill about half of the centivars of the natural order of things. Those are the, the science people. Mm-hmm. Then in issue two, we saw Aiko, Centivar number 97, also Wynn's ex-wife. Uh, she recruited a magically gifted college student named Mia. Uh, Ruben, you said last time that you thought that Mia was going to be to Aiko what Dimitri is to Wynn, and uh, I think we give you the, you got that right for sure. Uh, although it is irregular for a Centivar like Aiko to take on a magical kid like Mia. So it is, I was glad that Hickman in the book says, yeah, this is a little weird. So I felt a little better about thinking, hey, that's that's a little weird. Yeah. 
So this brings us to issue three. Wynn has arranged a meeting with Ico and Centivar number two to talk about their mutual problem. Brings along Doctor Strange as a backup. Mm-hmm. They meet in a part of the Library of Worlds that is like a, a cross between the Star Trek holodeck and the restaurant at the end of the universe from the Douglas Adams Hitchhiker books. Yep. This is a funny little detail. This room is currently displaying a an artwork, you know, holodeck type artwork by a guy named Cassilius called Of Black Priests and Black Swans. And Ruben, do you know why Doctor Strange might not be a big fan of this particular artwork or artist? Uh, nope. Cassilius is a Baron Mordo underling, and he's the guy who killed Doctor Strange right there in Jed McKay's Do- uh, Death of Doctor Strange miniseries. I see, yeah. So that little little wink wink there of <laughs> Doctor Strange. Saying, That's yeah, pretty cool. Not not my kind of thing. Yeah. Very tiny cool. bit, but I was I, I felt smart noticing it. And I always like when a book makes me feel smart. So uh that's good. <laughs> Uh, Wynne tells the Centivars what they learned from Cubis Core, all about the Skinner box and the in-betweener. So while this is going on, Dimitri was told to wait in the bar and not embarrass his boss, Wynne. So he orders a drink and chats up this girl who's at the bar drinking milk. Uh, and Ruben, who is this, uh, young, young lady there? It's Maria D. Maria. Mia the Magic Girl, who, uh, that, right, the one we met last issue, the college student who's a hard studier and has now been recruited to this whole magic, science, cosmic forces thing, and just kind of getting her feet under. Dimitri, it turns out, is 63. Doesn't look a day over 62 to me, so uh, he orders a cocktail. An Age of Enlightenment on the rocks, which sounds like a reference to a joke from the movie Swingers. Maybe, maybe not. So while they're talking, another customer enters the bar. This guy looks kind of disheveled, wears a red knit cap, uh, looks kind of looks kind of like it might be from Seattle, at least my particular stereotype grunge <laughs> version of Seattle. You know, again, I've never been there, but I think that everyone in Seattle looks like they just walked out of a, you know, a Soundgarden concert in the late 90s. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he speaks in red speech bubbles, which for all I know, everyone in Seattle does. But it just seems like trouble to me, right? You see red speech bubbles, mm, something's up. Yeah. Uh, who is this guy? Why don't you tell us a little about him while I have some tea? Yeah. It's a good question. I don't know what is, is it is. Does he go by Oblivion? He is Oblivion, yes. Yeah. So basically, this is, you know, when they were saying Gods was going to be like a Sandman kind of for the Marvel Universe storyline, this is where we started to see that. So we've got this, um, I forget they, how they described the Endless in Sandman, but basically it's a humanoid personification of the force of oblivion in the world. Yeah, I, I think on the Marvel side, they use the word manifestation kind of for these things. Yeah, we, he's, a, he's an abstract entity in the same class as the in-betweener. Uh, he's just here to watch the show. He doesn't seem to be involved. He just thinks, oh, something big's going to happen, and he doesn't want to miss it. Yeah, somebody told him the universe is going to end. Yeah, he has, he has connections. And we he's, down, he's down much. with that. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's not he- helping it along, but he doesn't want to miss the show. Yep. So we cut away to be introduced to yet another brand new character. This is Amelia Addison, and she is a Cassandra, which, if you know your Iliad and your Odyssey, means that she has the gift of prophecy but the curse that no one ever believes her prophecy, which has got to be pretty frustrating. Yeah, freaking annoying. She also seems to be kind of losing most of her humanity and almost becoming abstract herself, right? She She's kind of losing her connection to the rest of the human world. Yep. She's experiencing visions related to the stuff that Wynn and company are investigating, including dreams every night of a spiky 3D shape that she calls the shape of oblivion, which I'm, I'm, I get confused between the shape, which is oblivion, and the personification of oblivion. Exactly how connected they are, I, I, I don't know. 
Amelia has the most complex red string conspiracy wall that I have ever seen. And I, I've seen a few. They're very popular, you know, in comics and in TV shows. But this one is kind of out of control. Yeah. It spirals all over the walls and ceiling of her room. Really, really dedication to her crazy wall. Yes. Did, uh, did, you, did you enjoy that, uh, that vision there, that, that look of her, her uh, obsession there all over the page? Yeah. No, I, I love these sorts of like hypo, like hyper obsessive conspiracy things. I'm a huge fan of that. If I could be so invested in something to create my own psychotic string based conspiracy wall, I would totally do it. <laughs> uh, but I don't know anything well enough good for, to know. Good for, for me know. to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love going through it. Yeah. Go ahead. I especially like at the end of issue three, where we see some kind of like close ups of some of it. Yeah. Yeah. And you see like a hand-drawn picture of like dr strange like rewinding time you see that. that you see his the shape that's in his window that weird steve ditko kind of symbol that we see for yeah him. yeah so when i read this issue three like i was like this is weird they're close up being on that right doesn't make any sense to me but mm -hmm. you know then in four we see him actually using this power to like stop the oblivion bomb from destroying yeah. all of reality I, I, I love going through details like that it reminds me of like the chalkboard in the dc series 52 and that one was really big because it actually hinted at things going on in the DC universe, like for months and years in the future. I, I don't see so much here that makes me think, oh, this is you know huge coming attraction. It seems to be very much all about this incident. But we see like a picture of a B with you know the word B E E written next to it, which took me a second until I made the connection with the AIM beekeepers. So yep. that, that was that was pretty cool. Who is Steven? Right. Who <laughs> is Steven? Name Win. Yeah. Win. Uh, the date October twentieth, which must be this current day in the in the book, because you know this is when things start to hit the fan. So there are the other customers yang. in the bar. Yep. Oh, what is there a yin yang in there? Yeah. If you look at oh, the left. Nice. Again with that uh, dichotomy. I want to get extra credit retroactively for my AP English class every time I say the word dichotomy. So I like the one that says no. It's just like an arrow pointing <laughs> to the word no. <laughs> I need more information. What is yeah, we, it? I, I could spend, I love this kind of stuff. I could spend hours just zooming in and, and, and trying to, to figure out what all the little bits are. Yeah. So back to the bar. We got some other customers that's kind of hanging out in the background. Uh, three of them are AIM beekeeper types, two wearing the standard yellow, one wearing black. I don't really know if that signifies anything in AIM hierarchy, but it does make the one stand out from the others. I also just like this idea of like, Wherever the AIM people go, they're in their stupid little beekeeper outfits. <laughs> and also, they have incredible access to places, right? Like, they're in all these, like, really weird mystical I, places. I buy that. I'm fine with that. Yeah, library, but, library of worlds are all knowledge. This book is all about science on one side, magic on the other. So, yeah, they're, yeah. they're sciencey enough to, 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 you know, get in past the, the velvet rope. I'm, I'm fine with that. But I also think it's funny that all these characters that frequently fight against aim just they walk in and they're like oh god it's those guys <laughs> at the bar <laughs> yeah it's 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 like uh in that uh uh looney tunes cartoon where the sheepdog and the, the the wolf just kind of punch out and once they're punched out you know they're, they're buddies but punch back in they got to chase each other so the one aim beekeeper wearing black he kind of sets things off he has that oblivion shape in his hand the one from amelia's visions before he can do anything, Amelia is there. She used her prophecy powers to get her hands on a magical staff to teleport herself in, and on a gun, which she uses to shoot the beekeeper guy right in the chest. But it's too late. Oblivion's shape is triggering anyway, and while we don't know exactly what it's doing, Oblivion himself, the guy, he looks way too happy for this to be a good thing, right? Yep. 
And that's where issue three ends. Uh, I like this a lot more than issue two. It made me like issue two more in retrospect because I could start to go back and see the pieces coming together. A really nice art from Valerio Shidi, especially that, you know, crazy conspiracy wall, especially when Oblivion reveals his true form to Dimitri. That looked re- really wild and cosmic in a good way. That's also the, the character on the cover of this is Oblivion in his cosmic form. So yeah, I'm going to give this issue a, a solid, oh, I'm going to call it an eight and a half out of 10. Good book. Nice. Yeah, me too. I was super excited when I read this. And in general, man, there's a lot of art that I don't notice, right? I think I've been on record to say I just read stories, but I notice how good this art is. Every single issue, it feels like the story is more important because the art is so, so damn good. And, and I do love we're getting a consistent art team, and I really hope it holds yeah. up through all eight issues because I complain about it when it's not consistent. So I got to give credit when we, we get, uh, who is it, uh, Valerio Schiti on art, Marte Garcia on colors. And it, it, the cult, the, these new characters we're seeing for the first time. So I'm really glad they're looking like themselves from issue to issue and, you know, making themselves stick in my brain in a certain way. Looks great. And we get some interesting just storylines, right? Like we learned Dimitri is 63 in this, mm-hmm. um, which has got to be annoying, right? For him, he's that old and he's kind of being, you know, talked down to by. Win all the time and everybody right, else. But, but Win is what, like a thousand years old? Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So it makes sense. I mean, speaking. But like yeah. I said, he talks down to Doctor Strange too, right? But regardless, it's just nice little character details. And we see a little bit more how the, like his little weird computer works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hickman, so. not known as a great character guy. That's not his, you know, that's not his reputation. But I do like the way he's slowly revealing details about some of these new characters. He's, it's, it's working well. Yeah. Okay. Onward. Uh, right into issue number four. So while the first three issues were all really different from each other, issue four is basically a direct con- continuation of issue number three. Though we do get a flashback origin story of the guy in the black beekeeper suit. This kid is, well, not a kid anymore, but this guy is Robert Forson. He was a farm kid who was kind of adopted or taken in by the in-betweener, uh-oh, at age five, raised and conditioned for 15 years inside one of those Skinner boxes. More creepy, you know, uh, uh, what's the, oh shoot, I'm back in the Pacific Northwest, the director of that, Twin Peaks, uh, the Twin Peaks director, has that, that kind of creepy vibe to it. All these Skinner boxes make me think of that. <clears throat> this conditioning made uh, the kid, Robert, a, a genius scientist, and also trained him to think of the inside of the box as reality. Everything outside the box as a dream, unreality, which is just what we saw with Cubist Core. So um, again, we get that dichotomy, dichotomy. Points off, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Dr. Bocas, my English teacher. Uh, dichotomy, because the first you know, bad guy that the in-betweener sent out was all about the magic, and this kid's all about the science. Yeah. At age 20, the in-betweener lets him out of the box. He gets a few lab jobs and then ends up at AIM. And even there, he doesn't really feel, into pl- feel like he's in the right place, because he thinks he's still just in a dream. Mm-hmm. In-betweener visits him again. Gives him stripes on his face, just like the ones we saw on Cubis Core, although on the other side of his face. I forget which is left and which is right, but it is opposite. Uh, Inbetweener also gives him that geometric oblivion device. Now, I'm going to go even further aside here and, and, and say that I was looking through the Marvel fandom wiki because, you know, see first appearances and, you know, where people came from. And in Googling this guy, searching for this kid, Robert Forson, I found another character named Andrew Forson in the Marvel world. Not Robert, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Andrew Forson, let me tell you about him. Uh, who do you think he was created by? Jonathan Hickman. Uh, oh, okay. 
about a dozen years ago in Fantastic Four or FF number one. And he's appeared in 37 issues, so he's not just a one-off. Not just Hickman books, also things like by uh, Nick Spencer's Secret Avengers, the recent Patton Oswalt Modoc book, so he's he's kind of gets around. Andrew Forrestan is also an AIM guy, at one uh, point rising to be AIM's scientist supreme. Mm-hmm. So is Robert Forson related to Andrew Forson, or does Hickman just like the name Forson? Interesting. I don't know, but I think it's got to be intentional. Yeah, it seems like that's yeah. Hickman seems like an intentional kind of guy, right? He, yeah. he would have notes on this. He wouldn't accidentally reuse a name. Okay, so enough of that. Back in the present day, Robert. The guy in the black beekeeper suit has triggered the oblivion device, but Doctor Strange manages to hold back slash turn back the flow of time just enough for Wind to get to Robert and uh, punch him in the face. <laughs> not not really magical, not really subtle, but you know, Wind's yeah. all about results. We saw that yep. in issue one, and this gets results. It works. Uh, Wind picks up the oblivion device, and everybody kind of meets everybody else. When not happy that Ico has recruited Mia. What do you think of this whole relationship here between Wynn and Ico and, and what Ico's doing? Uh, she makes me angry. <laughs> oh, wow. Taking sides, I see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I I don't know. I guess I'm not more, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm more aligned with the mystical side of things than, mm-hmm. than the I have uh, to keep reminding myself that. You know, I th- think of Aiko as being very new at this because we saw her be new at this in issue one. Whoops, there's some 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 sound effects as I pour my tea. But yeah, but she, at this point, she's not. Yeah, we had a time jump. So she's been doing this for I forget how many years. So she is, you know, established in the Centivar. And also the Centivars have lost so many people that they're trying to rebuild things. So she's acting a little out of normal procedures, I think, because they have to. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that dynamic goes forward because this relationship is is still really interesting okay so uh before they all leave oblivion himself the entity guy he makes it clear to win he's not happy that win interrupted his entertainment he doesn't seem to blame dr strange at all he's just mad at win win brazens it out like a tough guy but it does seem to be like there's going to be consequences down the line having an abstract entity consider yeah. you his enemy yeah you don't want to do that <laughs> Something's One of the happen. most powerful beings in the universe. Yeah, you don't casually get on its bad side. <laughs> so that's got to play out not too long from now. That 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 shoe's got to drop real soon, I would think. So Robert, that's the the black beekeeper guy. He just wants to wake up, by which mm-hmm. he means he wants to leave this dream that we all call reality and go back into his box. Mm-hmm. So when and Strange take him to his box, and this time. They go inside as well, something they didn't do with Cubis Core. Oh, by the way, Cubis Core's box is in the Sanctum Sanctorum somewhere down, somewhere safe, which makes me nervous because if you read Doctor Strange books, you know stuff that's safe in the, in the Sanctum Sanctorum always causes trouble. Once they're inside the box, they see that the box is bigger on the inside, which, okay, that's, that's not new, very Doctor Who. Uh, and there are two exits. That was a surprise. The one they came in and another one. Robert just says, hey, I don't know where that door leads, only that I'm not supposed to go in there. So obviously, Wood and Strange go in there. We get a series of M.C. Escher-esque staircases and then an incredibly large warehouse. And Ruben, what is this warehouse full of? Looks like more more doors to more boxes, right? Yeah, it's, it's it all the boxes these, themselves. It's, it's the boxes. All these Skinner boxes, they have this this bold black and white kind of pattern on it, just like the ones that Cubis Core and Robert Forson got to be conditioned. So maybe the in-betweener is conditioning agents in all of these boxes? I mean, thousands and thousands of boxes? 
That's so, that was what I took from this is they thought only a few people were influenced and now they're seeing that he has like legions of individuals yeah. influenced. Bad things gonna start happening at scale. And just just the way they're all arranged too, we we kind of got a little bit of a Dutch angle and everything's kind of almost spiraling, sort of like the uh the conspiracy wall. It it's it's very well designed. Very looks very cool and, and spooky and cosmic y and yeah, and, and makes us think, uh oh, bad things are gonna start happening, which We've already seen the universe almost end twice in four issues. So if it's going to get worse from here, yeah, it, that's really bad. I wouldn't step into like one of these creepy ass boxes either. So I was like, just the whole idea is like that's creepy that they did that and very creepy. Yeah, I'd be worried if I was in there that you're getting influenced, right? Yeah, Doctor Strange did not want to go inside. It was all inside. Yeah. So that's the end of book four, and this story really starting to grow on me now. I'm seeing, I'm seeing some of the patterns come together. I want to know what the in-betweener is up to. Like, what is his goal here? He's not typically a let's destroy the universe kind of a character. So is he being influenced by somebody else? What's up? I I really want to see what's going on there. Why is he conditioning science types and magic types to try their own ways to make the world end? Yeah. Uh, So I'm going to give this book another 8.5, and I'm very much on board to see what happens in the the back half of the series. I presume, Ruben, you're about the same place? Yep. Yeah, at this point, I'm very much invested in this. I, I really love the way Hickman handles uh, Doctor Strange, and I kind of wish he would do a Doctor Strange story because it's pretty cool. That could be fun, and I mean, Wynn is kind of like a Doctor Strange character, but with some some extra aspects to him that I think make him, you know, also extra intriguing at this point. Without all the 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 backstory that has to go along when you're writing Doctor Strange, a little more freedom of action when you're writing Wynn. Yeah. I especially like the way he's doing spells, where they're just kind of weird, but I kind of can understand what is trying to happen. Like the whole, the whole like rewind a little bit at a time to let Wind get closer and closer and closer. I thought was just a really fun and how Wind spell is good at magic, but he doesn't rely on magic all the time. Like he's 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 not like oh this is my new trick. I have to use the same trick all the time. He's been around long enough. He knows when. Forget the magic. Just punch the guy in the face. That works too. And I liked the I liked this kind of character story of this aim guy, right? Like kind of tragic in a way of and then it I don't know. This is a bit of a stretch, but I love when these stories make me start thinking this th- these things, right? Like in a way it's kind of like a commentary on society, right? Like we're all conditioned, we're all raised within our construct, right? Right. And inside the box is a whole TV motif, which again a very David Lynchy kind of thing to do. Not not hit very hard, not hit over the head with it. But it's there in the art, and it makes you think. So, yeah, there are commentary, social commentary aspects in there, but very subtle, and you can skip right past them unless you want to go and, and pay close attention, which I think is probably the best way to do it. No, it's definitely the best way to handle it. It's fun to, to kind of think about it, and then you're just like, eh, it's not that necessary to the story, right? But kind of makes it more, feel like it has more depth. Mm-hmm. And we get so much backstory on Amelia and on Robert Forson. Uh, Robert Forson, especially, he could he could be out of the story entirely now, right? He played his part. He's back in his box. But we learned so much about him that I'm thinking, you know, maybe he's going to stick around. Maybe he's going to play another part in this in this story. Maybe this maybe creating this character is one of Hickman's real goals. So that is our coverage of Gods three and four. And I'm sure at some point, probably when we have a down week in the X books and we get some more of the Gods books come out, because we're all caught up now. We're going to talk about this some more because we like it a lot. Yeah, I really like it. Oblivion's ne- creepy as hell too. Just again, just last thing I'll say, just looking at the art, 
kind of looks like he's got a bit of a venom thing going on here with his face reforming. Yeah, uh, another uh, Starlin character. So if you want to see where Oblivion comes from, go and read those old Starlin Warlock books because Warlock's all tied up with these abstract entity deals and is an amazing writer slash artist. Good stuff. Uh, next time, back in the X world, we have two books. We have Fall of the House of X, uh, and we'll find out, will Jerry Duggan do something to make that event feel bigger? <laughs> no, we don't need that. Uh, and then in Wolverine, We'll find out. This is Wolverine number 43. Will Ben Percy and Victor Laval do something to make that book feel even bloodier? I like the killing. <laughs> and that's what we have next time. Just two books. So, uh, Ruben, you are you ready to, to dive into those next two things and, and see if Fall of the House of X actually is the big event it should be? Um, no. no. I'm going to miss next week. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, we'll have we'll have some discussion to do to figure out what we're going to cover. But don't worry, yeah. folks, there will be coverage of those two books. And if Ruben wants to run away from Fall of the House of X number two, we'll make something work. I'll send my notes. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm excited for them, but um, I actually have a family trip coming up. So wow. putting family ahead of comic books. I know. Sorry, oh, guys. Where's, where's my button? How dare you? There you go. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not going to hit the, uh, the obscene one because, you know, this is a family <laughs> show, but you can hear it in your head. Yeah. I okay, hope it turns so- around. I hope it, I hope it turns around for both those. I'm more excited about the Wolverine one, though, to be honest with you. I expect that to be better. Well, we will find out. Now, until you come back, which could be as long as a fortnight, uh, mm-hmm. another English word there for you, uh, what what do you suggest that our loyal listeners do while they, they, they pine for your, your loss? Yes. Well, I'll do what I'm going to do on this trip, which is read more X-Men comics. <laughs>